electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour inside the sell-off. Stocks falling, rates rising, earnings at least so far, mostly disappointing. Well, what does all of that mean to your money? We'll discuss and debate with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, Josh Brown. Let's check the markets as we always do, and we are in sell-off mode today. There's the NASDAQ, the point of concern, one and two-thirds percent, down 243. Dow down about 500, a bit more than one and a third percent. Rates are on the rise, 184, two-year high for the 10-year note. Jim Labenthal, I'll turn to you first because you told our producers you think this could be the week, the week that it breaks down. Yeah, and it is the S&P 500. Obviously, we're all aware of what the NASDAQ's been doing. It has broken down. But if you have even a modicum of attention that you've paid to valuation, you're not getting your your rear end handed to you. It's really the S&P 500 that if you're a diversified investor, you're paying attention to. So here's the deal. It's been 15 months since you've seen more than a 5% decline in the S&P 500. Every dip during those 15 months has been bought. And I believe that's because of the cash that the Fed's been in injecting into the financial markets. So with the Fed pulling back, this is it, all right? If we get down to 45.30 on the S&P 500, which is 6% down, then I think you're then I think we are getting that 10% correction which I've been calling for this quarter. And frankly, I believe it's going to happen. I also believe it's healthy, all right? Trees don't grow to the sky and it's about time that investors realize that valuations matter and that volatility normally does show up in the form of a correction at least once a year. So none of this is head for the hills and, you know, cry to your mother. This is just buckle your seatbelt and get through a correction that's led by higher interest rates and a less accommodative Fed. But by no means is the bull market over. The economic expansion is still early. And uh, so the bull market will stay intact. You just got to get through this. Yeah, well, I mean, trees don't go to the sky, right? I'll give you that. But I mean, the timber effect doesn't feel all that great. If you think that that's where we could be heading on the S&P, Josh, you've been focused a lot on the Nasdaq pointing out the 200-day moving average was probably the most important thing that you were looking at. We're below that now. 14,731 was the line in the sand. You could see where we're trading now. We're pretty much at the lows of the day. I've got uh, on the NASDAQ 14,624. And this was something that you said you need to keep an eye on because if you close below this, especially towards the latter part of a week, uh, you could get a timber. So there's, there's a couple of things going on here that I would mention with, with respect to that. Last week, we were talking about how it just didn't look as though the NASDAQ was done with the work that it had to do. And I agree with Jim's point. The S&P 500 is the market, but frankly, the NASDAQ real, is, the, is like the real market because the biggest components in the S&P are mostly the big NASDAQ stocks. And when you think about a NASDAQ composite that's now 7.5% off its high, we know historically that could get way worse before a lot of these stocks find the bottom. So nothing's changed in, in the way I'm looking at it. 
Uh, I think we have more work to do. What has changed maybe is that it's starting to become more noticeable that the rest of the S&P is succumbing to that. And so just think about financials, right? Uh, Down 2% again today. You had good earnings from J.P. Morgan. You had good earnings from Goldman Sachs. Obviously, they don't have the same loan loss reserves that they can stuff the cookie jar with. But, like, those businesses are on fire right now, and they can't catch a bid. The XHB housing, another business absolutely on fire, now trading at its lowest level since October. Transport selling off. And with the supply chain in the shape that it's in, we know that transport-related businesses are doing great. They have more demand than they have supply. Doesn't matter. They're selling off. And now you look at the Russell, which is back at previous support. It's hit this level, I don't know, a dozen times. This time it doesn't look like it's going to hold. And that's happening at the same time that you have mega cap, really important names to the market, like Amazon. Uh, Netflix is in almost a 30% drawdown. Uh, Looking very heavy, no buyers in sight. So you just have to sit back and say to yourself, this is bigger than any one stock pick that I have, right? You're in an environment where you could see a name that you buy go up 5% on Monday, down 6% on Tuesday, up 4% on Wednesday. There's no meaning. It's a much bigger story. It's not about that stock that you are fixated on. So the good news is, number one, once again, the Fed is letting the markets do its work for it. You now have a situation where a 10-year is 1.8%. You have a five-year at 1. I don't know, 5, 1.6%. You have a two-year treasury at, at 1%. So the Fed is letting the market do the tightening for it, which means it will have to do less as it starts to move. That's good. Mm. And then the second thing, Judge, for our viewers, oh, no. the second thing, let the market come to you. Now you don't have to chase Now we're not trending. You're not losing your mind like you're missing out. Now stocks are coming to you. Be patient. It's a much better environment for people who are trying to invest than new record highs every second of the day. And if you look at those positives, I think you're fine. You're suggesting, though, that because of what's taking place in the market that, I mean, you use the the words that the market's doing the Fed's job for it as if the Fed is going to go slower than people think as a result this of lets them go slower place. this lets them i don't know this if lets look, them go so okay that you may think that but the market doesn't think that because probabilities for rate hikes thanks to what steve leesman just sent me uh the, is at contract high all, all across the board march 100 percent talk to me in two Ju- weeks hold on june 87 percent september 76 December 69. So you've got the probability of four rate hikes, plus now the new added variable of quantitative tightening. Right. You're talking about doing stuff with the balance sheet, which they are. Sounds like the market has already made its bet, Josh. That well, that that that's a bet that that's a bet that changes. So if I showed you if I if I showed you what Fed expectations were every January at the start of each year and then showed you what ended up happening, you would understand that. That's really not something that you can hang your hat on. The market will move based on new information coming in throughout the course of the year. I think the Fed uh, has, to tight, has to tighten, should tighten. Most of the people on this show were talking about this past summer. There's absolutely no benefit to continued stimulus, pushing home prices higher, pushing stocks up, pushing the wealth effect. We didn't need it anymore. So it's good that we're here. We're probably here late. The market gets that expectations are being reset. 
But the more the market does the tightening of financial conditions, because the Fed used its jawbone, the better. And I think we'll see that as this cycle plays out. Steph, Credit Suisse, 10-year yields rising to a range of 2 to 2.25% creates a problem, they say, for equities. They say it's too early to add again to technology. We continue to see a valuation reset taking place again. You know, the Nasdaq um, is, is under pressure. If Josh's you know, point, let's just take it at face value. Um, if the market is doing the Fed's job for it, it raises the issue of a, a policy or the compounding the, the issue, if you will. If the Fed gets as aggressive as the market thinks it's going to at the same time where you have these conditions existing within the market, how do you reckon all that? We're data dependent, and so is the Fed. They haven't said it in a while, but we are. That's the, that's the reality. And the, the, also the reality is, is that there's inflation. I think today is very much follow-through from last week. We had a really hot CPI. We had a really hot PPI. Brent is now today hit levels it hasn't seen since 2014. We know about wages. Goldman Sachs just talked about wages are going higher in every part of their business, right? And we know their comp, exp- their, their comp ratio uh, it was impacted as a result. We'll talk about banks later. But the point of it is, is wages are going higher. They're at 4.7% year over year. Rents are going higher. Food is going higher. So all of this is inflationary. And th- because of that, the Fed has to act. And I don't think that, that I don't agree with Josh exactly, um, because I think the Fed is going to have to be active, at least for the first couple of hikes, because they're still being very accommodative right now. They're still buying bonds right in the face of all of this. So I think they are going to have to act. Is it three times in terms of hikes? Is it four times? I don't know. But I think they are going higher. But let us all step back for half of a minute and just simply simply say the reality is the economy can handle higher interest rates. The consumer is yeah. doing fine. Hey, the economy uh, can. Especially on the... No, 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 no. The, the economy no, can. No, I'm not no. so sure let, let the stock market because... can, Steph. I, I, I just don't know if the stock market can because right now it's so, sort of unsure whether it can or not. Well, let's get through earnings and let's listen to what people have, the companies have to say. But I do think the economy is very important to watch because everybody is freaking out because they think the economy can't handle higher interest rates. And the consumer is fine. Industrials are fine. Energy is seeing a renaissance. And those are the sectors you want to be overweight. By the way, those are the sectors on a relative basis. If you're a portfolio manager and you're trying to beat your benchmark, they're actually holding up better. So I think you have to be very specific. And yeah, I'm watching rates to your initial question. We've gone from 134 on the 10 year to 183 in six weeks time. The velocity of that move is very, uh, it's almost, it's, it's not alarming, but it's noteworthy and something that we have to watch. But I think this economy can handle two, two and a half percent uh, rates, 10 year. Uh, and I think that uh, that'd be healthy for the Fed to normalize the policy. And I've been saying that for a long, long time. And that's why it's important to watch the economy. Okay. Because if we can't handle it, that's when there's going to be a policy mistake. To the man now who is so important that he has an ETF named after him, Joe T with the dollar sign. Mm-hmm. So you've heard what everybody has to say. Um, I- I'm going to get to some of your moves in just a moment, which I find rather uh, interesting as to how you view certain parts of this market. Is this the week, though, that Jim Labenthal suggests could be, I don't know, you know, the bottom falls out or you do have a, a, a broader move to the downside? Josh suggests that the, uh, the Nasdaq is, is susceptible to that if you close below the 200-day on a prolonged period of time. 
So first of all, Jimmy mentioned at the top of the show the S&P and the importance. Today is the first day in quite a while where the majority of the S&P, over 90%, is down. That's actually a worse condition than the NASDAQ, which is down about 80% of those stocks. Um, as far as what Josh is talking about with the 200-day moving average, he's correct. There are a lot of players in the market. I myself am one of them that are trading from a, a very short-term oriented outlook, whether it's in the futures markets or in the Q's options, and they're trading against the January 10th low from last Monday. The Q's have not taken out that low just yet. So it gets ugly if you take out that January 10th low. But I think the way that I'm thinking about things right now, a couple of weeks ago, and Steph was on the show when I, when I made this point, I said, why are yields going up? Are they going up on growth or are they going up on inflation? And I really think what's unfolding right now is an understanding, as we see real and nominal yields rising significantly, that inflation is the problem. I heard Josh's comments about the Federal Reserve and the impact on lower asset prices on what their policy might be. But you know what? I think the real effect is that lower asset prices are going to continue to slow back the economic growth side of this. So for me, over the weekend, Bill Ackman, 50 basis point hike. We haven't done that since 2000, 22 years. Guess what? Bill's right. We need to go faster. We need to go quicker. We need 50 basis points. We need to begin to get more aggressive. <coughs> You're normalizing monetary policy. You're normalizing risk assets. You're normalizing volatility. And you have to normalize your strategy. And your strategy has to be one that's more oriented to owning low beta and less risky assets. Now we're, now we're at the point of shock, shock and awe. Uh, Joe, is that where we're at? Because I saw Ackman's tweets as well about the mm -hmm. 50 basis point move at the, at the next meeting. Um, so I, here, that's where we are now? You know, Scott, inflation seems to be the problem. And how do we resolve, you know, inflation and the issues of it? Price oil is $85 as we're speaking right now. You know, Stephanie mentioned before the challenges with supply chains. You're going to be hearing in corporate earnings the rising input costs and the wage pressures that they're experiencing. To me, inflation is the issue. We're still buying back bonds. That's insane. Why are we buying back bonds? That Can program should end points? immediately. Can I make two quick Worse points? Than just that. To we'll sum buy back up, mortgage right? bonds. Go ahead. You've got, Go ahead, this Jim. Is really yeah, easy. This exactly. is really easy to understand. You've got, you've got a 1.8% Treasury yield with a 7% inflation environment. That means real yields on the 10-year are negative 5.2%, while the GDP of this nation in the last quarter was around 4%. That's an absolute illogical yet inconsistency singularity that needs to be solved. And the way it's going to be solved is by both numbers coming closer to each other. And that means interest rates are going higher. You can't get multiple expansion in that in that situation. At best, you'll get stable multiples. I think they're going to come down. Uh, and let me say one more thing about why this is make or break this week is because over the last 15 months, these dips have been quickly, quickly bought. All right. You've had like three days to get your buying done before all the cash that the Fed's been putting into the system floods the market. I don't see that happening right now. I just don't see the dip buyers coming in. That's why it's make or break this week. And I wonder, you know, that 7 percent inflation rate is so artificial and 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 not and not. The new normal okay, rate of change Josh, is already decelerating. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Come on. But let's go ahead. 37% increase in used cars. Do we think that's slow down. continuing? Slow down, Come Josh. on. Slow down. 
Where do you go ahead? Tell us what inflation, what your projection for inflation this year is, because unless it's lower than 1.8 percent, you still have negative real 10 year yields. And that doesn't make sense in a 4 percent GDP environment. Is, I is, agree. I, is nobody, I, don't, I don't want I don't is nobody I don't want that environment either. Is nobody looking yeah. at the, the Microsoft Activision deal today and, and suggesting maybe the market is like getting a little crazy with itself about all the Fed fears and the fact that the market's overvalued because Kramer's take on it was a wake up call for everyone worrying about the Fed and the markets being overvalued. Um, they saw an opportunity, a stock that had come down. A lot. Clearly, they didn't think the stock was coming down a whole lot more. Maybe they would have waited. It's a nice premium, but certainly at a discount to where the stock was, uh, you know, uh, before they had a lot of the workplace culture issues. What are we to make, Joe, of this deal that Microsoft is trying to do with Activision? And we'll see if it gets done and through the regulatory uh, gauntlet. What do we think about it? So I think there's a very small component of, of the equity complex that could actually have the confidence and the balance sheet to step out and take advantage, as Microsoft did today, making the, you know, the largest purchase that they've made in quite some time, largest purchase the market has seen since the onset of COVID. So there's a very small component of companies that have the ability to do that. In addition to that, in an, envir- an environment where volatility is clearly increasing, in an environment where you're going to get this change in monetary policy and companies are trying to figure out how to retain their pricing power, um, I don't think this is going to be the beginning of what you're going to see coming forward over the coming weeks or coming months where you're going to have multiple deals being announced right now. Unfortunately, the behavior generally is in an environment like this, uh, some form of management retrenchment where they kind of just sit back. So, yeah, Microsoft or Apple, they could go out and they could do a type of deal like this. But I don't see others stepping forth in this environment. I don't know, Steph. I mean, genius move by by Microsoft, right? I mean, it took advantage of the environment. Great move. Around Activision's share price because of maybe, you know, in large part because of the issues that the company has had, along with the market resetting valuations to be advantageous to what it thinks it can do with the metaverse. I've always looked at what corporate CEOs and boards do with their cash. Um, It's very interesting. It's very telling. Uh, We had record levels of M&A last year. We had record levels the year before that. And I think it speaks to the fact that the companies feel like they have better visibility about the future or about their business, and they want to put money to work, and they want to get size and scale. And this is perfect. I mean, Microsoft has a ton of cash. So this is almost an afterthought for them. And yeah, Metaverse, we all know. It's one of the reasons why I've been buying more Meta or Facebook, because I do think it is actually something very exciting. It may be 10 years down the road, but companies have to invest now for that and to benefit from that and the trends. So I think this is very bullish. It seems like they're paying a high multiple on EBITDA, but they are getting at a discount from where it traded just a year ago. So um, I, I don't own either stock, but I, I applaud the move for sure. Is there, is there, Josh, a broader statement about the market itself that this deal is, is consummated now? You know, just given where valuations are and the questions about them in tech. And by the way, you know, Microsoft shares, I think later, late last week, up to that point had been something like 12 percent off of the highs. So, I mean, those shares have pulled back, too. Maybe they everybody thinks in that complex of the deal that the worst perhaps is over. So 
the to, to look at it positively, uh, it is a it is a very big deal. But Microsoft is now a very big company, so to compare it to deals that Microsoft did ten years ago maybe is not appropriate. You're talking about a, a very inflated currency in the form of Microsoft shares, um, and then the negative way to look at it is well, this is in, this is actually emblematic of the bigger problem and what the Fed has to to fight against. They have $130 billion built up in cash on their balance sheets, Microsoft. Um, so, so like in this environment, $68 billion deal for, for Activision, sure, why not? Maybe this will be a record year for, for M&A and we'll see even more of this kind of thing. But I just think that there's too much money out there to begin with. And when you look at valuations, forget about Activision, just all up and down the chain, starting with seed rounds for companies that started yesterday and just got the business card printed. Founders say, all right, I bought a URL. My company's worth $50 million. And people are actually writing checks uh, in accordance with them making that statement. In that environment, when I talk about the Fed doing its job, uh, the market doing the Fed's job for them, if we can calm equity markets down, public and private, if we can slow the rate of change in demand for things like housing in the top 20 metropolitan markets, if we can cool things off uh, just using the wealth effect, it's not that the Fed shouldn't raise rates and eventually taper off its balance sheet. It's that this buys the Fed time. If we can, so I think the Fed knows it needs time. I think it knows it has some of the data on its side. Wage inflation is not the same as asset price inflation. So when you look at a deal like this and you look at a company like Microsoft, they could do three, of deal, uh, three deals this size. And that's part of the issue. Just too much money chasing too few opportunities. And I think it's all really one big story. I'll tell you, wait until, wait until oil gets over 90. Then we're going to see, you know, where the inflation conversation goes from there. Because it's not getting, uh, I don't think, enough conversation. It's at 84 bucks right now. So, yes, wage inflation, certainly going to be sticky. Other inflation, used car prices, other things, you know, maybe not as sticky. Oil prices? We'll see where the conversation goes there. Let me do this. I, I, I told you I've got to get to some moves of the investment committee. Before I do that, let me jump to uh, Julia Borston, who I'm told has a news alert. Julia? That's right. AT&T weighing in with an update on its conflict with the FAA over the rollout of its 5G service. That 5G rollout is set for tomorrow after multiple delays on the request of the FAA and the airlines. Now, it, AT&T t- saying in a statement, quote, at our sole discretion, we have voluntarily agreed to temporary, temporarily defer turning on a limited number of towers around certain airport runways as we continue to work with the aviation industry. Going on to say, we are frustrated by the FAA's inability to do what nearly 40 countries have done, which is to safely deploy 5G technology without disrupting aviation services, and we urge it to do so in a timely manner. Going to say we are launching our advanced 5G services everywhere else as planned with a temporary exception of this limited number of towers. Now, that's the word from AT&T. We've reached out to Verizon as well to see what their comment is on this issue. AT&T shares down about half a percent. Scott. All right, Julie, appreciate it. Julia Borson, thank you. All right, let's get back to um, the, the markets conversation, the moves that I wanted to get to. Stephanie Link, you first. You bought Freeport, FCX. Why? Yeah, I've owned it. I owned it most of the year last year. I took my profits. I'm sorry I did so. Um, There's very limited supply growth. There's only about 2% expected this year against demand. That's going to be double or maybe even triple that amount. 
These guys have had a history of poor execution, but that's starting to change, especially with their key mine, uh, copper mine in Grassburg. Um, and I think you're at a free cash flow inflection point. They raised the dividend last year. They're going to continue to focus on dividend growth this year. And they're, they're seeing free cash flow growth because copper prices are actually higher. They're actually up 5% in the last month alone. So I think in the meantime, they're delevering. And, um, and I like the fact that about five, it trades about five times EV to EBITDA. So pretty attractive still. Okay. Uh, Joe, man, you don't have much patience. When one of your stocks starts going down, my man, you are hitting a ripcord. Uh, was it <laughs> Nucor? Right. Lost 10% in two weeks, you're out. ISRG, lost 10% in two weeks, you're out. XM, down 20%, you're out. Tell me about these moves. Absolutely. Never take the knockout punch. I learned that 30 years ago. That's why I'm sitting in this chair today. I don't take knockout punches. I take jabs, down 10%, down another 10%, down 20% in two weeks. Those picks are brutal. One of those picks, Qualtrics, is in my stock summit. You might as well just now obliterate me on my stock summit picks because they're all going to stink in June at this point. But I believe in understanding what your risk exposure is in a market. And when you lose that type of capital in two weeks... You better do something about it. I'm not sitting here hoping and wishing these stocks are going to come back. That's not how I play the game. It's a matter of survival. All right. New core down about 4%. Uh, we'll see in the other slide. Right, we'll keep our eye on those. You let us know if uh, they, they go down enough that you want to buy them back, which uh, you may at some point. All right. We're going to take a quick break. They go in the penalty box. Yeah. When we come back, shares of Kohl's are rallying today. Amid the sell-off, now an activist investor, a familiar one for that company, calls for more change at the retailer. We'll talk to the CEO. We'll talk to the activist next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Russia says that it is sending troops to Belarus for major joint military drills. The move will put more military assets near the border with Ukraine, where an estimated 100,000 troops have already been deployed. The Biden administration has crafted a $50 billion plan to prevent wildfires near communities. The Agricultural Department is planning to double the use of controlled fires and logging 
to reduce vegetation that feeds fires. Former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke says that he has raised more than $7 million for his bid to become the next governor of Texas. The race could become the most expensive of this year's elections. Republican Governor Greg Abbott has not released his latest figures, but as of last summer, he had more than $55 million in his campaign chest. And Airbnb CEO says that he will be living at properties found on his company's site. Brian Chesky says that he's doing it to highlight how remote work has freed many people to live anywhere. Chesky says that between July and September, more than half of all nights booked were for stays of a week or longer. We'll have time after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Department store Kohl's once again in the crosshairs of an activist investor, the same activist who waged a campaign against the company a couple of years ago. Maselum advisors once again calling for big changes at Kohl's. Jonathan Duskin of Maselum joins us now. It's good to see you again. Welcome back. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on. So it is interesting that you're back. I mean, you you settled with the the company more than a year ago, right? You got your couple of board seats. You got them to to make some changes. And why are you back? Well, um, you know, unfortunately, um, the stock hasn't performed well, the business hasn't performed well, and two directors just wasn't enough change. You know, we really tried to work constructively a year ago when we entered the settlement. Um, You know, the company and the board, you know, told us and other shareholders that everything was working wonderfully well. They had the business fixed and they were on the right track. Uh, If you read our letter, you can see there are many quotes um, from Michelle and the rest of the team about how well things were going. And if you look now a year later, it's another wasted year. Uh, Sales dramatically underperformed the sector, whether it's on mall or off mall or specialty or big box. Um, All forms of retail, they underperform. Their sales aren't even growing versus 2019. Uh, Most of the industry is up 20 percent versus 2019. They're negative to 2019. While their EBITDA has grown, again, it's still lagged the entire sector. Stock trades at one of the worst valuations. It trades cheaper than it did during COVID and the Great Recession at 2.7 times EBITDA. And, um, you know, a year ago, Scott, you might remember they would say, oh, we're doing better than the department stores like Macy's and Dillard's. They can't even make that claim. Macy's is up 130 percent. Dillard's is up 300 percent. 
unfortunately, it looks like though we had some people in the boardroom, it wasn't nearly enough change and a lot more change is required if shareholders are going to be able to generate returns here. I'm trying to I try to wonder, you know, what sort of more substantive change do, do you need to happen other than faces in a boardroom? I mean, they they reinstated the dividend. They increased the buyback. They've invested in the brands that, that they have, like Sephora. And I'm wondering, how is it possibly enough time a year? Let's just call it a year. How is that possibly enough time to allow a retailer who's made some of the changes that you first demanded? And I'll use the word demanded because that's really what you did to see them through, especially at a time when you're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, you know, Scott, it's a, it's a fair question. I, I think it might be helpful to just pull the lens back a little bit. This is a company that's unfortunately been failing for a very long time. If we look back to the greatness agenda that they launched in 2014, they missed all the objectives they were trying to accomplish then. Um, if you look back to what they set forth in 2019, they missed all those objectives. So it's not like um, this is a new phenomenon, like they just started missing numbers. This has been going on for decades. In fact, two decades. The stock price is below where it was 20 years ago. So th- th- it's, it's not new, and it's not new that hope springs eternal at Kohl's. There's always another new initiative. There's always something else they're working on. There's another shiny object that they're going to chase that's going to, you know, drive sales in the next period. It used to be Amazon. It used to be Pop Sugar. You know, now it's going to be Sephora. And unfortunately, the core merchandise assortment and the value proposition uh, is broken, and it needs it needs help and it needs to be fixed immediately. Otherwise, the company is going to continue to lose market share year in and year out. And look, buying share back, uh, buying stock back is great. We've recommended doing a major sale lease back and buying more stock back. But at the end of the day, they have to fix the core operations of this business. That's where they're underperforming. That's where they're losing market share. So, I mean, I have your your letter, you know, obviously here in front of me in which you which you do mention another wasted year. You do take issue as well with the company's shift into athleisure, um, sort of throwing cold water on that plan when last quarter growth in that segment was up 25 percent. Now, I'm no retailing expert, but 25 percent growth in a quarter sounds pretty good. Yeah. You know, again, it's important that the whole store grows, right? We've seen this, you know, all you might remember, all I focus on is retail. And this is a phenomenon we see year in and year out with failing retailers. You know, they'll pick one part of the assortment and they'll commit a lot of inventory to that part of the assortment. And yes, if you double your inventory commitment to that part of the assortment, it has the potential to grow. But the problem is you're not growing the whole pie. Same store sales, comp store sales are still negative versus 2019. And despite having some growth in that area where they've committed a significant amount of inventory dollars, they've not had growth in other areas or not even maintained those other businesses. So where athleisure might have gone up, other parts of the business went down. And I think we say it in the letter, you know, what's interesting is we believe these things are kind of fashion trends, right? It's a, it's a 90, 100,000 square foot box. They have to be able to serve all parts of the day, all parts of a person's life, evening, daytime, weekends, work. And to say we're going to be an athleisure company, you know, is, is not a sustainable strategy for a company that big that caters to such a wide audience. So as they're maybe growing athleisure, they're losing share in maybe dress up. And as we came out of the pandemic, people were sick of wearing sweatpants. And, you know, they wanted more in the assortment that Coles didn't have, unfortunately. And you see it. You see what Dillard's has done. Their sales are up remarkably up 30 percent. Macy's are up, you know, high teens, 20 percent. Every other company's assortment is resonating much more with the customer than Kohl's assortment, despite maybe having a little success. Every retailer has some successes and some failures. But until the whole pie grows, it's hard to call it a success. So 
Kohl's plans to have their investor day on March 7th, where they say they're going to continue to lay out part of their strategic shift. Um, I'm curious as to why you, you didn't wait to hear what the company actually has to say. They uh, today to us are responding to you in which they say, quote, we have continued to engage with Macellum since the settlement and are disappointed with the path they have taken and the unfounded speculation in their announcement and letter. They contend that their strategy is producing results. And again, I suggest to you, why not wait until March 7th, which in the big picture is really not that far away to find out what more Michelle Goss, the CEO, has up her sleeve. Well, Scott, you know, I guess I, I turn the question back to Coles. Um, you know, where's the sense of urgency? They told us in um, November, I think it was at their Q3 earnings call, to wait patiently until March, where we will come back to you with some more information about our plan. Again, put that in context. They also had an analyst day and an investor day in October of 2020, where they laid out, you know, big picture platitudes that we w- didn't think were very rigorously, rigorously analyzed and weren't very uh, deep, and we didn't think we're going to be very effective. We talked about that a lot in our last campaign. So we've kind of heard it before. Hope springs eternal. You know, it's a lot of shiny objects that they like to chase, but there's really no meat to fixing the core assortment and fixing the value proposition. And, you know, it's interesting. They left out a few things in their comments about working constructively. We work very constructively. They've known that our standstill ends, um, you know, last week. They've known that for a year. Uh, they know when the nomination deadline is. They've known that for a long time. Yet they chose to put the meeting in March. I didn't chose to put the meeting in March. And if they want to disclose something they think is so powerful and so meaningful, I just ask, where's the sense of urgency? Just disclose it now. Let us know all these wonderful work streams that you're working on. They're going to create value. We're very skeptical. We didn't see it coming out of the 2020 investor day. I doubt we're going to hear much more than platitudes at the next meeting. And again, I don't think they were fair in their disclosure. They didn't say that the goal of their disclosure was to get us from speaking publicly. We agreed not to share any non-public information that they might uh, give us. But what we wouldn't do is agree not to be muzzled. And that's what they wanted. And they also said point blank, under no circumstances, were they going to add new directors or a shareholder to the boardroom? So they didn't really engage constructively with us. And um, that, that, that will all be a matter of so, public record. So a couple of quick things before I let you go. Um, how many more directors do you want? And are you going to wage another proxy fight? L- why don't you answer that first? Uh, you, you know, so the nomination deadline is February 11th. Um, we're still in the process. We didn't publicly list our nominees at this point because we were still hopeful that maybe we could engage constructively. Um, but um, it seems highly likely that we will be nominating those directors um, within short order. And uh, we haven't solidified a number yet, but, you know, we were pushing for material change before we got two. It clearly wasn't enough. So I think we're going to continue to push for material change. And I believe we have an incredible slate of directors where we added Tom Kingsbury, one of the greatest retail operators in the country last year, um, as well as others. I think we have an equally compelling slate this year. Lastly, you suggest and you do it in your letter that the company should consider a possible sale uh, as an alternative. And you say, again, I'm quoting here, you heard that the board uh, had been approached and rebuffed overtures from credible buyers. Those are the words from from your letter. And I, I thought to myself, well, that that sounds kind of flimsy. You heard. I mean, it's like third hand knowledge. Um, do you have any proof of that? But then I saw a story that broke not not long before our show began today. Uh, Reuters reporting that Acacia Research, backed by the activist investor Starboard Value, has reached out to Coles to express its, its interest in making a bid. Um, do, do you know about that bid? Have you spoken with them? Where are we on that? Um, 
I, I've not spoken to Starboard. I, I, I've not spoken to anybody at Acacia. Um, I, I have heard that. Um, <laughs> to use your words, it was rather flimsy when I heard it, and I didn't put too much um, weight behind it. But it's been very persistent, and now obviously it's being reported publicly that uh, that could be happening. But um, look, th th there are not many companies that trade at 2.7 times EBITDA that don't have interest from private equity buyers, right? Apollo bought Michaels at like eight times EBITDA. So there are, there's a significant amount of private equity interest in this name. It's incredibly cheap. We didn't even talk about the seven to $8 billion of real estate. You can almost buy the company for free if you monetize the real estate. So we, we are, are very confident that there's a tremendous amount of private equity interest. And we really feel like the company needs to run a process at this juncture. They can no longer just chill the process and rebuff buyers. They have to hire a banker. They have to start a process and they have to give people access to the company so we can try to monetize value without material change in the boardroom, which the company has told us and the board has told us we're unwilling to do. The only other way for for shareholders to generate any meaningful return is for the company to be sold and let somebody else get a shot I mean, in turning this they, around. They also did say they, you know, they looked at your idea of the sale lease back on their $78 billion worth of real estate, which they suggest, and I think the words that Michelle Goss used, it just didn't create value in the way that you suggested that it might. Um, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up, Scott. If, I think if you look at our letter, we lay out in some substantial detail why it's accretive. Uh, we walk through the math, um, including the increased rent, the reduced share count, uh, the lower cash flow, because now you're not paying a dividend anymore. Um, it's wildly accretive. Um, you might remember uh, a campaign we ran a couple years ago in a company called Big Lots. $700 million of market cap, sold their real estate for $725 million, and the stock effectively doubled. Kohl's has the same opportunity here. They're unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to pursue it. They're unwilling to hire um, advisors to, to analyze this. Uh, we've seen this transaction create so much value so frequently in the past. We're just shocked that this board is so intransigent and won't do anything to create value other than perpetuate the status quo. We, uh, we'll follow the story. We're, we'll see where it all goes. Uh, John Duskin, I appreciate your time today as we watch uh, Coles uh, up nicely in uh, what is a otherwise down tape. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for the time. All right, that's John Duskin. Coming up, Goldman Sachs tanking on the back of a rare earnings miss. Well, some of the committee owns that stock, which means we debate, we discuss, figure out what they're going to do next. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Elon Moy in Washington. The FTC and the DOJ just announced that they are working together to begin reviewing the agency's merger guidelines, claiming industries across the economy are becoming more concentrated and less competitive. Specifically, the agencies are interested in whether the distinction between a horizontal and vertical merger still makes sense, whether to change the bar for the level of market share that would automatically imply competitive harm, monopsony in labor markets, and they also want to make sure Sure that their definition of a market is still relevant, especially for digital players. Today, Khan said that the goal is to ensure the FTC's tools remain dynamic and holistic rather than static. A lack of competition also appears to have left segments of our economy more brittle, as consolidated supply and reduced investment in capacity can render us less resilient in the face of shocks. Meanwhile, Contra said that markets are no longer one-dimensional. Concentrated market structures can harm downstream consumers and upstream workers at the same time they foster uh, coordination or exclusion in adjacent markets. Everyone loses, except the extractive, powerful firms in the middle. 
Now, the deadline for public input is March 21st. Then the agencies will decide whether to craft any new guidelines. But, Scott, judging from their remarks today, that seems pretty likely. Back over to you. I was say, are you listening, Microsoft and uh, Activision? Ilan, thank you. That's Ilan Moy joining us from D.C. We're back in two minutes. Uh, we're going to get to the banks in just a minute, but take a look at shares of Kohl's. We continue to follow that story. I just want to get a comment. Stephanie Link, any interest in Kohl's? I have owned it in the past because it's always so cheap. It's trading at seven times earnings. And it's interesting because right now there's like a 13 percent of the shares outstanding are short. So you definitely see the pop today. But I, I do think the space, Scott, is very, very challenging. Um, and I just feel like the place I would rather be with more consistent returns is something like the off pricers, like a TJ. You know, I own that. And mm-hmm. that's not been a great stock, by the way. So I, that's where I would play. You know, we'll see how this whole thing in terms of Kohl's um, evolves, though. Okay. Uh, at least wanted to button that up. Thank you, Steph. Uh, all right, let's talk Goldman Sachs. Having the worst day since June of 2020. That's after the bank reported an earnings miss, a surge in operating expenses. And Joe Terranova mentioned your patience of wearing thin in this market. Um, used to wax poetic about Goldman Sachs. Now you wax I them right. That, now did. you wax them right out of your portfolio. You sold them this morning. I did, Scott, and I've owned Goldman Sachs, to be clear, since the middle of 2020. The the thesis was always me coming on air, talking about the trading revenue, the environment that would benefit Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and others. Um, I'm disappointed in myself because after Jeffrey's report last week, I was concerned about trading revenue. You get the trading revenue this morning for Goldman Sachs. It comes in lower than expectation, down 7%. It was actually the analysts were looking at for being higher. So I look cumulatively at my positions. I understand rising rates. I've got my regions fine, regions and Bank of America. I'll be okay there. But I still have exposure. Morgan Stanley, IBKR, and then the Joe T ETF, the largest industry weighting is the capital markets at 8.7%. So I can't sit here and hope and wish that Goldman Sachs is going to make a recovery. It's below the 200-day moving average. How to take it out of the portfolio. And I am bringing the register on it. I've owned let this me, for a long time. Let me ask you this. Why are you not selling Morgan Stanley ahead of its report this week as well? Are you worried about that one now? Uh, James Gorman hasn't told me what his trading revenue is going to be. So you, can it you might fig- be that Morgan Stanley you, did a better job of it. But after we've got... I'm concerned. Well, you know what I mean? That's a great, like, by the way, that's the right... You're trying to get a read No, that's through. the right question. I'm, it, yes, that's the right question, I, I, and I apologize to you for that. That's, that's the right way to think about it, but I, I am going to retain my position in, in Morgan Stanley, and hopefully the asset management division and some other areas of it will, will buffer uh, the downside if there is a trading revenue decline. But that, that's a fair question to ask and come back to me on that, because I think in the case of Morgan Stanley, that's a name that I could move out of. I will tell you, Jeffries is a name I'm interested in. Okay. Well, I'm glad, you, at the very least, you approve of, of the line of questioning. I certainly didn't want to offend you. would never want to do that. All the time. Never want to do that. Oh, right. no. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. We're almost out of time. We, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Final trades. I'm just noticing here Dow's down 620-plus. We're back after this. Uh, Steph, here we are at the finish line. What's your final trade today? Uh, Wynn Resorts. I think post-Omicron, you're going to see a recovery in Macau. 
The Chinese concessions and regulations were much less severe last week. And Las Vegas and Boston are humming. So I like this one for 2022. All right. Farmer Jim. Yeah, not not tweaking my boy, Joe. He knows I love him. But this Goldman move is one of the biggest overreactions I've seen in a long time. You're supposed to step in right now and buy this. Wow. Buyer. OK. Down eight and a half percent. That's interesting. Joe, you go next. Burke. OK. And Josh Brown. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway up 7% on the year while the S&P is down 4. That's not an accident. $150 billion in cash okay. that they can put to work. This is a port in the storm. All right. Good stuff. Guys, thanks. Thanks for watching as well. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.